Hey folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is the MCrit Podcast, part two of chest tube insertion. In part one, we went over all of the peri procedural stuff, uh, all of the things you might want to know how to set up a pleurovac, uh, location of the incision, uh, all sorts of fun stuff. If you haven't listened to that one, this one will stand alone or will be perfectly appropriate to listen to first, but I highly advise you listen to the set at some point, otherwise you are missing out on vital information. So let's jump right into it. But before we jump, one plea. We're at the end of the year now, end of the calendar year. Uh, you're about to lose out on any tax benefits. It's very likely you have money stored in your educational fund at your hospital that needs to get used. Please consider joining MCRIT. If you've been with us for a dozen years, obviously you're getting value out of this content. And why deal with the rigmarole of, is it a free episode? Is it not? Uh, having to not get access to show notes. It's, it's just a pain in the ass. And I want you to have the best possible information for the resuscitation of your patients, to be able to take advantage of our entire team and all of the uh, mental space we have to pick every new uh, article, procedure, idea in emergency medicine, critical care, and resuscitation and bring them to you. So please consider joining at mcrit.org slash join. All right, let's get right into the show. All right, first let's discuss PPE. Because if you're at the point you're putting a chest tube in, and no matter how crash it is, you think you get away with not having personal protective equipment, then you will eventually rue that decision at some point in the future. I promise you, because I've been there. So here's the thing. I will demand, if I have the ability to do so, that you wear eye protection for every trauma case, um, and certainly for every chest tube insertion. Uh, now, the uh, mask absolutely essential in the days of COVID. You're entering into a cavity that could very well be spewing COVID juices in aerosolized form into your face. That, that, that little hat, honestly, even for operative procedures, it's questionable how much of a difference this makes. I'm not saying don't do it. And in fact, I advocate that if you're working in the resuscitation area that day, you just wear the hat the whole time. We started doing that during COVID. I think it's uh, what we did at Shock Trauma routinely. I think you should probably just do it. Doesn't matter that much. Would I stop a tension pneumothorax relief because you don't have the hat on? Probably not, but definitely the eye protection and the mask. And then if you have the time, both for the uh, sanctity of your garments and just for full sterility, if you could get a gown on, it would be very beneficial for a crash chest tube, but certainly for an elective one, you got a gown up. And I see all the time my surgical colleagues coming down, putting an elective chest tube in without a gown, and that is not acceptable. So don't do it. And then you want a double glove. I can't stress this highly enough. You want as much barrier between you and a broken rib as possible. And, you know, are these going to always be sterile in a crash procedure like a patient who is in traumatic arrest? No, but you should have sterile gloves immediately available at hand, out of a draw, you know, in a, in a something on top of a cart in various sizes uh, in your recess base. I strongly advocate for this. And if you have to grab the wrong size at this point for the emergent portion of the procedure and put on two of those and have floppy fingers, it's better than uh, entering into the chest cavity with non-sterile gloves if you could avoid it. But certainly, uh, at the very least, you want a double glove with something. I don't care if it's sterile or not. All right, now before we go forward with the rest of the procedure, take some time for some mental preparation, especially if you're a resident and if you haven't done many of these, if you're heightened uh, because it's a really sick patient and now you're getting your first opportunity to do a chest tube. I see uh, most people are in the black zone of the stress response and their hands are shaking. It's not good to have a scalpel in your hands when your hands are shaking. So 
take a few big deep breaths. You can see uh, the work that Mike Laurie and I did on square breathing and and stress relief in the moment. Uh, you could do the entire uh, Mr. T type, uh, beat the stress fool type situation here. I will link to that in the show notes. Uh, but you definitely want to lower your autonomic drive before you start this procedure. The other thing you really want to do, especially if you are a junior to this procedure, is visualize the entire situation, the entire uh, steps of the procedure before you do it. And this could be very quick, but it will definitely calm you down. And it will also remind you of some key uh, points like where to actually make your incision and how big that incision should be. So actually mentally visualize the perfect chest tube performance and it will up your game. All right, let's talk equipment. I have a list of stuff in the show notes at mcrit.org slash 313. You can check it out. Um, but, you know, you you essentially know the main items, but the, the little stuff always gets forgotten, and then it's a pain in the ass. You have to go searching for it. Uh, what we did um, at both of my EDICUs is we actually had a pre-made kit, and I really think this is great. It's a pain in the butt for your stock people, um, but this is not performed all that often and so it's usually worth it um and you can just put everything that is not the chest tube the pleurovac the chest tube tray into one big plastic bag and have everything you need all set for you if you can't make that happen it's really nice to have all of this in one drawer uh in your trauma bays or resuscitation areas uh, or you know putting in a, a plastic tupperware is what my buddy chris hicks uh, did at his shop but having this all together there's a lot of stuff here so having it all together is really helpful the other thing you really need is a big table not a friggin mayo stand these things should be banned they are garbage mayo stands are inexplicably useless for anything except putting on sterile gloves you need a big table and if that means like a patient eating table um then great but you know it's really nice if you can to have uh, steel, stainless steel tables for your resuscitation bay that are the size of the patient eating uh, tables because they're just easier to clean. They don't have the crevices and they don't get taken so that the patients can eat and you just engrave them or mark them, you know, for which resuscitation bay it is. That's, that's super helpful for so many procedural things. You want a big table. You don't want to put the stuff on the patient's bed and you don't want to chew it, try doing it on a tiny little mayo stand. Now, if the patient's conscious, you want to anesthetize. Now, I see people use way too little lidocaine, and, uh, and then the patients are miserable. This is a miserable procedure in general. Uh, it's super painful for the patients, and to do this without anesthesia is completely unacceptable unless the patient's floridly unconscious. Now, what you really need is at least 20 mLs of lidocaine with epinephrine. If, you have, if the patient's weight is right, then use 2%. If you get away with 20 mLs at 2%, it's really, really going to help. It's a much denser level of anesthesia. Um, if the patient's small, then you might have to use 20 cc's at 1%. Uh, the lidocaine gives you some extra room there, so most patients can take 20 cc's of the 2%. And then what you want to do is uh, you want to pick your site, and we went over that extensively in the previous show but remember you got higher is better and you better make sure you're safe and you better make sure you can see your landmarks after you drape so that you know you're still in the right place and you're not gonna hit the diaphragm and what i like to do is simply anesthetize the skin for the skin incision just below the rib i'm gonna go over so you're gonna enter in right above the rib and i anesthetize the skin just below that rib we used to tunnel up multiple interspaces um that actually led to, like, I think, increased complications, no decreased air leak. Uh, that's been, I think, fallen out as old dogma. Don't do that anymore. It's unnecessary. So anesthetize the skin. Um, give yourself a sizable skin wheel. You know, make it big. There's no reason to uh, go small here. Make a big skin wheel. Anesthetize the uh, muscles just under that skin wheel all the way up to the rib. 
And then I actually like to give some anesthesia right at the periosteum of the rib. And then at this point, you know, that might be like that total of what I just said, like three or four cc's. I like in the deep muscle to put another like 10 cc's in a field. So I'll go in a little, uh, you know, from the from the actual skin incision cephalad, uh, I will go in at a 45 degree angle to my needle point of entry, give some, come out till I'm just under the skin, uh, go in again a little bit more uh, angling, uh, and then keep going until I have it like a 45 degree fan of anesthesia in that deep muscle. I think this sets up what is in essence a field block and gives you much denser anesthesia than just going into one spot. You really want to give space for your hemostats to be able to spread without causing excruciating pain. And I think one of the problems is people don't use enough anesthesia. The other problem is they don't go deep enough and the actual part that hurts is not the skin. It's all that muscle and stuff you're going through. Then I like to hit the rib and then push my needle in just above the rib until I'm actually in the pleural space. Uh, you'll, you'll see some air there. Um, you know, you'll usually get air back in your syringe and then pull back a millimeter and then make sure you don't have air. That tells you you're right at the parietal pleura, and then give like another three or four cc's right at that point. Um, and that that hopefully will anesthetize a very uh, well-innervated parietal pleura. All right, so I'm using all 20 mLs for uh, pretty much any patient, even if they're, you know, in extremis, if I have the moment, uh, it's really nice to give anesthesia because it doesn't take very long. This whole 20 cc's goes in in the span of like 10 seconds. Now, if it's not emergent, and yet you still feel the need for a chest tube, and those are kind of incongruous, ask yourself if the patient doesn't deserve some degree of sedation. Now, that could be full-on deep procedural sedation, especially for, you know, people you really care about and have the time. You know, it takes a lot of time for the department. Department kind of grinds to the halt. But at the very least, it's really nice to give, I think, two milligrams of midazolam uh, if you don't want to do a full procedural sedation. Uh, because first of all, it chills them out a little. It's an anxiolytic. But even more so, they forget. And then they don't blame you for the misery you've induced. So in both ways, uh, you're getting benefits. And uh, you don't need the entire rigmarole of a procedural sedation uh, with all of the nursing and consent and all that crap. So I really like to give two milligrams of midaz. Now be careful if you're going to give both midazolam and an opioid because they're obviously synergistic and you can't get to the point where the patient's going to have some respiratory depression. All right, what you're going to do next... Now, if you were an MCRIP member, you'd know what you need to do next. But unfortunately, in order to know what to do next in this critical procedure, come on over to mcrit.org slash join and make yourself a better resuscitation doctor for the benefit of your patients and your practice. 